The concept of sustainability as we understand it has actually been around for quite a long time and it's it's pretty broad and it's notoriously difficult to define even now after it's been around for quite a long time. Hi, I'm Sebastian Volney and this is The Sustainable Fashion Wingman, the podcast bringing you insights and choices from the world of sustainable fashion. I know I say this every episode, but if you are enjoying the show and want to help me get the message out there, why not share it with your friends and colleagues and get them to follow the podcast too. Also, feel free to link with me on LinkedIn should you be interested in working in sustainable fashion or think you'd make a good guest on the show. There's only one Sebastian Volney on LinkedIn, so I shouldn't be too hard to find. As you may have noticed by now, and it's in the name, the podcast talks about sustainable fashion. But it's a term, like many terms, that is used over and over again, whose meaning is starting to lose its weight behind the original message. Even to the extent of some businesses refusing to call themselves sustainable, and even marketing themselves as not sustainable. But we all know, regardless of the phrases we use, there's a valid reason behind the sustainable fashion campaigns and movement especially more prevalent in light of the recent UN's report on climate change, which we know the fashion industry is a heavy contributing factor. But for sure, it can be a confusing area of discussion. So today, we're pleased to have a sustainability expert, Laura Gibson, to cut away some of the noise and provide clarity around the methodologies and terms in sustainable fashion. Plus, a deep insight into another unfortunate trend, greenwashing. So, sustainable fashion, what's it all about? And how can you avoid being sucked into greenwashing? Let's find out. Hi, Laura, really nice to have you here to chat with us today. Uh, Hi, Sebastian, thanks so much for having me. You're welcome, good to see you again. And glad that you're gonna provide some much needed clarity on the subject of, dare I say the word, sustainable fashion. Now you've been at the sustainable fashion game for a few years now, and it's a career that's really taken off as expected in correlation with the explosion in the sustainable fashion movement of recent times. Can you start us off by giving us a little background into your expertise and what you currently do, please? Yeah, sure. So um, so I grew up on a farm and um, I grew up surrounded by nature, as you are surrounded by on a farm. And um, I was really interested in materials and the textile supply chain in particular when I started to study fashion. So um, I studied fashion at Ravensbourne in London and went on to work at Alexander McQueen and Boudicca and Swash and um, various other small um, luxury brands. And I worked As you do with small brands, I worked across pattern cutting and fabric sourcing and product development and design and also in production and, you know, I got a really holistic understanding of of, um, how fashion brands work. And that kind of brings us up to five or six years ago. And I was interviewing for new roles and chatting to different brands and agents but my my interest in sustainability was considered quite niche at that point which sounds quite weird to say but um it it wasn't really on a lot of people's radar um a while ago and also I didn't really feel like I knew that much about it so I became a little bit disenchanted with with the fashion industry and um left to go and work with a fine artist for a while and um 
started reading up about sustainability and the more I read about sustainability the more I, I realised I didn't really know that much about sustainability and all the areas that the fashion industry touches from from farming to shipping to, you know, social inequality. And there, there were just so many things that I just felt like I really wanted to know more about. So um, I decided to apply to study for a master's in sustainability leadership from uh, the University of Cambridge. And um, which is what I've been doing for the last two and a half, two years part time. And um, I've just completed my dissertation on um, sustainable supply chain management. So that's me, me done with my degree. Well done. Thank you very much. And um, so now I work as a sustainability consultant in the luxury sector. And I'm also interested in policy change. So um, I am involved with Fashion Roundtable. And I've co-founded something called Lab 2030. So at Lab 2030, we've been um, investigating the feasibility of a garment traffic light labelling system to communicate to consumers um, the sustainability of of a product. And um, we really wanted to consider the, the feasibility of this. So would, how, how would it affect consumer behaviour? Would this even work for SMEs who don't have access to the certifications and the, the, the money, basically, that big businesses have, and whether it would improve the industry? That's really fascinating. It's something that uh, I think I was talking to a previous guest on the show, um, how you get this kind of lighthouse system with food for example, uh, and you know, we were talking about why isn't this a thing in fashion, but in fashion, it's quite an early stage. So I can understand it would, there would be a lot of implications, especially with around cost for even the smaller businesses to go into that direction. But it is, I think that is a very interesting direction for products to go in, especially with the, the need for more sustainable transparency these days. Now, I really want to get to the nitty gritty of sustainability, cut away a bit of the fluff. It's a, a word, as we know, that's used so much, it's almost becoming a word to avoid or easily dismiss as too trendy to be taken seriously. So I want to start by getting your definition of sustainability. Trend or not, what does it actually mean and why, you know, why does the movement exist? Um, so I'm going to go into a little bit of the history, but I'll try not to be <laughs> too, too long-winded about it. Um, the concept of sustainability, as we understand it, has actually been around for quite a long time. And it's, it's pretty broad and it's notoriously difficult to define, even now after it's been around for quite a long time. So it tends to follow three pillars, which are environmental, social and economic factors but they can be called planet, people, profit, or various other things. And um, these three pillars are based off the principles of systems thinking, which basically means that they interrelate with each other. You can't really have one without the other. So they're the foundation of many sustainability strand, uh, standards and practices, such as the business concept of triple bottom line accounting, which is where you don't just look at the profits of your company, you look at the measuring the social and environmental impacts of the company as well. But some critics say that profit still is, is the king of the three pillars. So that is, that is the criticism of the three pillars. Sustainable development, which is a guiding principle of sustainability, so you've probably heard of the UN Sustainable Development Goals, and as a def uh, people use the definition of sustainable development to cover sustainability. So um, the definition that a lot of people use comes from something called the Brundtland Report, which was released in 1987. And that said that sustainable development meets the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. 
So the issue with this definition is that it's pretty loose. Um, how do we define the needs of the present? And at what point do our needs compromise the needs of future generations? So we're already working with a really difficult thing to define. And another point is that this definition is from 1987. So what may have worked in 1987 hasn't really been acted upon. So global fibre production has doubled in the last 20 years, for example. So such a passive definition is really unlikely to inspire the fundamental changes that we, we really must make in, in the next ooh, eight and a half years. Wow, that was very informative and it was quite a lot. And it's absolutely understandable that a definition like that is somewhat outdated after everything that ha that has happened in the time since then, even in the last couple of years, in fact, and especially in the last month, especially with the UN report and, and what we know needs to happen now. It was obviously a very nice definition. You know, like you say, it was slightly vague, <laughs> but um, now we realise that definitions are not enough to actually instigate the action that we need. So we're hearing various businesses and experts using different terms to express that their business is green or doing things right by the environment and the people all along the supply chain. Like you said, the, the three different pillars, a lot of companies are following those. But can we break that down? You know, can you give us a clear insight of what things like circular fashion some companies use, slow fashion, regenerative, what they all mean? You know, in fact, let's let's start there. Let's start with regenerative. Okay, yeah, so um, that moves on really nicely from what we were talking about with sustainability. So if we imagine that there are three paths that we can take. So the first is business as usual, where we continue, um, sorry to be a bit of a downer, where we continue to deplete na uh, the natural resources and emit huge amounts of carbon. So, so basically in 2021, Earth Overshoot Day landed on the 29th of July. So that means that every day after this, um, for 2021, we go over our budget of ecological resources and services. In a business as usual path, this date is likely to get earlier each year. And as the recent IPCC report outlined, this is a pretty bad option for humanity. So we don't really want to continue with, with that option. So the second option is sustainability, which as we, as we discussed, is meeting the needs of the present without compromising the needs of future generations. So if we met the sustainability targets, there would be no Earth Overshoot Day. So say by the end of December 31st, we would have used up all the ecological resources and services for the year, but we're not overusing the resources. So we're just using our budget. But that um, w currently we, we aren't meeting that target. Um, and also, it doesn't really consider how to undo the damage that's been done up to this point. So there have been huge declines in global biodiversity since the 70s, for example. So sustainability doesn't look at removing those losses. Um, the third option is regenerative. So rather than an Earth overshoot day, we would end each year in credit. So you would get to the December the 31st and our resource use through the year would have renewed the ecosystems rather than depleted them. So uh, Rick Ridgway, the VP of Environmental Initiatives at Patagonia, really summed this up nicely. So he said that he was interested in moving away from causing no unnecessary harm to doing good. And that's really what we need to think of with uh, regenerative practices. But... The fundamental challenge is how do we become regenerative and how do we do that in less than 10 years? 
So um, ecologically, approaches such as regenerative land use, so that's things like rewilding, where you, where you allow nature or you support nature in going back to its natural um, ecosystem stability, and regenerative agriculture can restore and improve the health of ecosystems. So there's really some really interesting um, work being done in this area. So um, a new charity has been launched called DIRT, which is I'm working on regenerative, um, regenerating soil. So that's something that's really, it's, it's quite, um, it, it's not new, it's just being talked about a lot more now. Um, but when we consider regenerative practices or even sustainability, there, there is a tendency to focus on the environmental impacts. But something that I really want to highlight is that we can't separate the social from the environmental factors. So more than 30% of the earth is already conserved by indigenous peoples and local communities. And it's really important that we in the global north acknowledge that it's predominantly our practices and our consumption levels that are driving climate change and biodiversity loss. So we just need to be very much aware of these social factors within sustainability. In addition to this, the human socioeconomic system of the fashion industry is, is built on generations of uneven power dynamics and colonialism. And um, these have been really highlighted in the last two years, but they are ingrained throughout fashion systems. And they're really, really complex issues that we all need to look at with sensitivity. And it's, it's a really big subject to talk about. Um, I, I wrote an article about building regenerative brands that explores this a little bit deeper. That's on um, Other Day, which, which can be found if people want a few extra resources on that. Next, if we think about fashion holistically, mm -hmm. so um, this means to really go back to the beginning and consider um, a company's purpose. So um, if this really means making financial considerations a means to an end, and that end being long-term well-being for society, and not financial considerations being the end itself. Um, which this is basically the well-being economy, but it is it's a really challenging thing to to address as businesses because this is how businesses have traditionally run. So defining a business's purpose means deeply um, aligning the business the business society and sustainability together. So you consider all of those things together, and um, so that that is basically the holistic um, perspective. Sustainability and knowledge and action shouldn't be limited to just certain departments in businesses as well. So we need to make sure that sustainability is and knowledge is spread across different roles and business functions. And it can't just be a tick box exercise where concepts are cherry picked for marketing purposes. So that's that's what it means to look at sustainability holistically. And you mentioned circularity as well. That's right, yes. So um, this is also somewhat simplified um, with how people speak about it at the moment. So um, there is a hierarchy of circularity, which is actually a really useful model to, to look at here, which takes us from linear ideas to the circular economy. So at the bottom, closest to linear, we have recycling and recovery, which basically means incineration for energy, which feels like a uh, horrible, <laughs> horrible use of clothing. One thing about textiles is that they're frequently recycled to become lower grade fibres. So that's technically 
downcycling rather than recycling. Interesting. So the um, the Changing Markets Foundation found that 85% of brands surveyed said that they use plastic bottles to make recycled polyester and and invested tiny amounts of, in fibre to fibre recycling technology. So this basically means um, that this is downcycling because if um, bottles are recycled into clothes but there's no capacity to recycle those clothes after you can't reuse them whereas if the bottles were recycled into bottles you could keep recycling them bottle to bottle to bottle right. rather than bottle to clothes to bin right i see so there there are considerations about recycled materials that's very interesting and Yes, <laughs> it's, it's, it's again, this is a super complex thing and working in sustainability, um, you can't be an expert on all sustainability. So I would recommend if people are interested, there's, there's so many people that are really knowledgeable about this that would probably be able to provide a little bit more information than, uh, than what I'm providing. But really overall, less than 1% of materials used to produce clothes are recycled into new clothing, which is pretty poor it's very very and small amount yes. yes and it's a huge gap in sustainability strategy but it needs a lot of investment in infrastructure so um recycling shouldn't really be how people consider you know that should be a lower priority circularity um so if we go back to the hierarchy a better option for circularity is extending the lifespan of products through repair and reuse there are challenges here. So um, value, the value of clothing has gone down a lot and you need to value your clothing to want to repair it because it's pretty tricky. And um, also there are skills that have been lost in society about repairing things and altering things. And um, this is coupled with the cost of repair if you want to repair what you've bought. So I love what people like the Restory do but it's very luxury based. So how do we address this for high street garments? This is something that um, has been, it was discussed in the EAC um, report a few years ago about how we can um, support um, tailoring on the high street again. So that's, that's something that's quite interesting. And another issue with this is there is a huge amount of clothing donated to charity. So uh, the UK consumes more clothes per person than any other country in Europe. And although the UK has one of the best recycling rates for clothing, much of the donated clothing is shipped in giant bales to countries like Ghana, where the local clothing industry is swamped and is often destroyed by the secondhand clothes. So ABC News recently estimated that 15 million used garments pour into Accra, which is the capital of Ghana, every week. So it's um we can't just have clothes and then put them into recycling and think that's circularity we all need to consider that a little bit more so what do you feel is the best circular because obviously when we talk about circularity we often talk about you know recycling and, and donating to charity shops for example so, so if that's not the best way of doing it what do you feel is the way to go forward in circularity um, I mean, donation does have its place. I wouldn't say that it's better just to throw things away rather than donate them to charity. But if we all start consuming a little bit less, then there will be less going into the recycling and charity shops will have less to, to deal with. So they will have less to ship abroad. So there is, you know, there is a market for it. It's just it needs to be 
less. Less, right. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, so the the circular hierarchy does have a good a good um, top solution for for this. So they basically say we have to consider the current sales models. So um, so for example, the rental market. So rental works very well for certain things like a posh bag to take to a wedding or something like that that you're not going to use very much. So that is a really, really good option for rental and also peer-to-peer rental. That's that's a really interesting thing to look into. And you can also look into modular design. So thing, uh, coats that have detachable liners or detachable hoods. So you can use it for different seasons. So you're, cons- you're buying one thing rather than three or four things. And then um, reducing the amount of resources that you're using and reducing the amount of waste. So basically, I think circularity needs to come from the brands. So the brands need to reduce what they're producing and produce things in a modular um, fashion and also engage with the rental market. And consumers can also look at what they are consuming and what they're donating and how that um, how that impacts. Yeah, absolutely. And we've seen a lot of uh, new businesses starting up over the last couple of years, in fact, that are based on rental models and upcycling models as well. What do you think about upcycling? Yes, I I really like upcycling. I really like the concept of that. And um, I wish there were more, um, there was more art teaching in schools so people could, um, people could look into you know, adapting their own clothes. Yeah, I think it's going to be, I think it's an interesting craft. And I think it's one that actually might start to blow up in the next year or so. Yes, yeah, I think sales of sewing machines um, went through the roof through the pandemic. So <laughs> yeah. I think there's quite a long waiting list for sewing machines. Wow, okay, so. maybe I should start a sewing machine shop. That sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> now, also, a lot of people, when it when it comes to, you know, thinking about sustainability, a lot of companies and people think about the materials being used. I know we talked about, you know, everything from the agriculture and the soil, but a lot of people do focus on the materials because, of course, a lot of the impacts and alarms come from the overconsumption of finite resources. Uh, and it is a very confusing subject. We hear one day that organic cotton is the most sustainable fiber, and then the next day it's hemp. Uh, some say only natural fibers are sustainable, but even you know even that's slightly disputed by, by many, in fact. So can you clarify what view should brands and businesses be taking when it comes to material choices? I would say a really important factor here is suitability. So I would argue that it's really hard to say that one material is the most sustainable. I mean, it's easier to say which are less sustainable, but it's really hard to say which is most sustainable, but you don't really want a a knitted wool bikini. So, you know, we can go back to the plastic recycled bottles. Um, You know, if that's being used for sportswear or swimwear, then maybe there's a place for that. So, but maybe not t-shirts, you know, we just have to reconsider all of these things. And when it comes to material choices, brands really need to do some research about what's best for them, both in terms of environmental impact, the social impact, and also the longevity of the design. So many of the metrics used to assess the impact of fibres, you've used life cycle assessments, which assess the environmental impacts of defined stages of production processes. There are a number of issues with life cycle assessments. Um, they're, they're very difficult to perform for natural um, materials. So if you imagine comparing a farm, which is exposed to changeable weather, different soil conditions and pests with synthetic materials made entirely in factories. So 
you're not really comparing apples to apples in that situation. So I would urge caution with some of those some of those systems. Um, life cycle analysis is also incredibly expensive, and again, social factors aren't considered. So if we um, look at the social impacts, you really need to consider the nuances of each material and where it's produced. So um, for an example, I will um, chat briefly about Mongolian cashmere, although I did write my dissertation on this, so I will be brief. <laughs> okay. um, so up to a third of the Mongolian population earn their livelihood from herding cashmere goats. So although goat numbers have quadrupled in the last 20 years, if all brands who are interested in sustainability stop using cashmere, herders are unlikely just to get rid of their goats because they rely on them. So they may continue producing cashmere, but non-sustainably, or transition to rearing goats for meat, neither of which are likely to improve sustainability in the region. So I would argue it's better to explore sustainable cashmere, which supports herders to reduce goat herd sizes rather than stop using cashmere in terms of sustainability. And um, it, this it's just one example. There, there are many other that are non-animal based as well, such as cotton and which region you're buying the cotton from. So this is something that does take time as well. So there are companies that can, that can advise on this kind of thing. So it's quite a complex uh, area to look into as well, like you're saying. So it's not just a case of let's stop using this fabric and use this one instead. Um, what do you feel of the comparison between natural fibers and non-natural fibers yourself? Myself, I tend to sit on the natural fiber side, but as I said, there is there is a place for synthetic fibers. Of course. So I don't think we should remove synthetic fibers completely, but I don't think that um, synthetic fibers are the answer to um, to all life sustainability problems. Right, and I know that you said there are, it's always easy to say what are the worst fibers, uh, do you want to give us an example? <laughs> no. No, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, probably virgin polyester, right. I'd say, is, is pretty pretty bad. I thought you might. Bad. Th there, are, there are many recycled options. So if you're going to go for polyester, try to do it. Yeah, I thought you might say that, to be fair. Now, another area you're very informative about and something people have at least some understanding, um, and we hear it in the media every now and again because it is becoming more prevalent, is the term greenwashing. So it'd be great to get your expert definition of this and even better to explain how we can recognize it and how consumers can avoid it. Yeah. Um, so greenwashing is more easy to define, which is nice. Um, so it basically means to provide misleading information or generally give a false impression of the sustainability of products or brands. So giving it a kind of a green sheen rather than um, being truthful about what you're producing. And there are a few quite easy ways that um, consumers can recognize greenwashing and brands can avoid greenwashing. And um, so, so first I would say mainly, this, this is the key one, so always look for measurable figures which support brands' claims. So don't accept glossy marketing speech or vague statements without numbers to back them up. That's, that's quite a, a simple thing for consumers to look at and something that brands can really um, address with how they're communicating as well. Um, I also like brands who are truthful. So talking about their success, but also talking about their failures. So showing that um, they are holding themselves accountable 
and showing where they need to improve, but also allowing other people to learn from their mistakes. So to improve sustainability collaboratively, not just work on it on your own. So um, there's, you can also try to do some research about brands. So are they considering sustainability holistically in every area of the company? Um, is their sustainability offering just a tiny, tiny percentage of the larger brand offering, which is quite a key greenwashing area for big brands? And um, really importantly, what about the people in the supply chain? You'll find that many brands talk about their materials, but far fewer talk about the people that grow their fibre, make their clothes, or work in their design studios. So again, it's the social aspect that um, really needs to be clear when brands are talking about sustainability and consumers are looking out for greenwashing. So um, another area is, is the brand just pushing one area of sustainability? So do they just use recycled materials? Or um, are they looking at reducing their production numbers? Do they provide aftercare or instructions on how to maintain products? And um, there, are, there are resources that consumers can access and brands can also use them to improve their own practices. So there's the annual transparency index, which is big brands, but um, they are completely transparent uh, about their processes. So that's really handy to see how they rate transparency. And there are a few um, websites who create sustainable selections using quite robust methodologies as well. Um, another thing is we need to be aware of hidden trade-offs. So just because a material is vegan, it doesn't mean that it's just sustainable. So because many materials, particularly vegan leathers, contain plastic and um, or plastic-derived materials or polluting chemicals that are not advertised when you're buying them. So other materials such as bamboo, it grows fast, but you use hazardous chemicals during production and sustainably certified cotton has had quite well documented issues with unpaid labour and mistreatment of workers. Yes, I think that's that's a few a few options to, to check. <laughs> that's quite quite a fair few there. And you're right, it is it is quite confusing uh, for people to actually understand what greenwashing is or actually to identify it but like you said there is fortunately a lot of new companies and some of the more established ones as well that that correlate this information so it's easy for consumers to look at and see you know what which brands are actually doing the most towards sustainability and not just like you said in one area but all areas too because buying a product that's sustainable doesn't necessarily mean it's being produced ethically either uh, i think it's really important for businesses to have this information and create transparency if it's on their website or their socials, um, because I know that's much more appealing and more attractive to the consumer when they can actually see the information there um, behind, you know, behind the product, an actual kind of rundown of where that product's come from, who's made it, how it's been made, and how they treat uh, their supply chains. Um, and I know a lot of businesses are starting to do that as well, which is admirable, absolutely. Uh, do you think? companies use greenwashing for a certain reason and, and how do they get away with it? Um, I don't think that all companies that are guilty of greenwashing do it intentionally but it, it does happen quite a lot. Um, we do have to be careful you know sustainability has become much more mainstream and people are much more aware of sustainability in the last two years so everyone's kind of on a learning curve as well so it's very easy for me to sit here and say greenwashing is this this and this but a lot of um, brands 
have found that what they were saying in the past, so we use organic cotton or we can certify, we can trace our fibre from field to factory, that was enough. Now, consumers are becoming more educated and people becoming, um, they, they just want more information. So a lot of brands just need to give out a little bit more information that they, they have. So I would say that some that look like they're green, well, many actually that look like they're greenwashing probably aren't to the extent that they give the impression that they are. Right. That's interesting. Do you think there should be some kind of regulation around these kind of practices? Um, yes. So um, Fashion Roundtable recently released a report called the Cleaning Up Fashion Report. And um, one of the key recommendations was to introduce a garment adjudicator. So um, Tradecraft Exchange found that the creation of a groceries trade adjudicator 10 years ago made a huge difference in um, buying practices within the groceries industry. So um, there's, there's quite a lot of support for this garment adjudicator, but how an independent regulator could operate in the UK fashion industry, what they will be responsible for and who's going to pay for it are things that need to be addressed. But there is definitely um, talk about some form of um, independent regulator that's very interesting and obviously if you want to learn more about that keep an eye out or shall i say an ear out for our next podcast episode spoilers as a species we have a short amount of time to correct our damage to the planet what do you think the fashion industry needs and can do to play its part right now this is ending on a, <laughs> a difficult question. Um, so I, I think that every brand should really just consider their purpose and if their mindset and their goals align with the purpose. So if brands start to consider sustainability at all points in their supply chain and in their operations and are honest about the challenges that are faced and um, communicate with their supply chain, so the relationship with the supply chain moves from transactional to collaborative, then I think the industry is will be moving towards a more sustainable future. That was pretty summed up well. Oh, well, Laura, it, it has been a very insightful uh, discussion. I'm really glad to have done this episode because I know there's a lot of specific terminology that we talk about on the podcast that can be confusing. So it's great to get some clarity um, behind these talks. I'm pretty sure there's lots of points and new information as well that many of the listeners can take away. And I, I guess they can come and maybe link with you on LinkedIn too if they want to find out more. Yes, yeah, sure, that's fine. Yeah, I'm easily findable on LinkedIn. But I'm not the only Laura Gibson, I think. Oh, fair enough. I'll, I'll put a link in the episode description just <laughs> okay. in case. And yeah, it's been fantastic. Thank you ever so much for coming onto the podcast today. And Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. Thank you again to the listeners. Uh, I hope that's been able to learn something new today. This has been, as always, the Sustainable Fashion Wingman podcast. I've been Sebastian, helping you dress, live and work more sustainably. Mm-hmm.